0: Hi, I'm Susie. Our scripture reading today comes from James chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. This is the reading of God's Word. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man comes in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, Here's a good seat for you. But say to the poor man, You stand there, or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom He promised those who love Him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of Him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, if you're new or visiting our church for the first time, we are currently in a series through the book of James. It's this short, super practical book that gives us a picture of what a life transformed by the gospel actually looks like. Like if the Apostle Paul in his letters is primarily concerned with unpacking what the gospel is, James is concerned with how the gospel manifests in the life of a believer. Like, how does the story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection change you as a husband or wife? How does it change the way you interact with your friends and coworkers? How does it change the way you make decisions and navigate conflict? And what James is getting at is that it should change you. Because you can't possibly experience the grace of God and not have it completely turn your life upside down. Like we all know, the more significant an experience in your life, the more it changes you. All you new parents know this very well. You cannot have a child and expect your life to stay the same. Everything changes. Your priorities, your sleep schedule, how you spend your time and money, your conversations. You know, easiest people to start a conversation with are new parents. Because all you have to do is talk about their kids. Feeding, sleep training, daycares, strollers, your entire life now revolves around this little human being. And this is what James is getting at. He's saying you can't possibly encounter Jesus, the living God, and not be changed. Now last week we closed out James chapter 1, which ends with this verse. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. In other words, being a follower of Jesus means we begin to see the world the way God sees the world. It means we begin to value the things God values. It means we begin to view people the way God views people. And this is exactly what James is addressing in our text today because he's looking out at the church and he's saying, something's wrong here. Like, I'm not seeing a community that values the things God values. I'm not seeing a community that views people the way God views people. I'm seeing a community that operates very similarly to the way the world operates. I'm seeing a community that elevates certain kinds of people and devalues others. And he says, this kind of favoritism has no place in the church whatsoever. And we're going to use our text today to answer three questions what is favoritism why is it so deadly and how do we cure it okay what is it why is it so deadly and how do we cure it first what is it well this word favoritism that we see here in verse one which is sometimes translated partiality comes from a greek word that literally means receiving someone according to their face judging someone by what you see on the outside and treating them accordingly And James gives us a specific example of what that looks like in verses 2 to 4. This is what he says. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves, and become judges with evil thoughts. Now, I'm sure many of you are probably thinking, well, I would never do that. That's horrible. How could you ever do that to another human being? When you really think about it, don't we do this all the time in our hearts and our minds? Don't we immediately size people up the moment we meet them? Or let's flip it. I want you to think back on your own life And I want you to think about all the times you've been sized up by your teachers, your employers, your pastors, when you were judged on the basis of some external quality, what you look like, where you went to school, your age, your ethnicity, your gender, your family history, whatever it may be, all of us have either benefited or suffered as a result of favoritism. And many of us to this day, are still either reaping those benefits or healing from those scars. And it all comes down to the fact that someone at some point in time decided to judge us by what they saw on the outside and then chose to either favor us or reject us. And as much as we don't want to admit it, you and I were just as guilty of this. You know something Carol and I do all the time when we're stopped at a red light and someone's crossing the street Uh, is we create our own narratives about that person's life, okay? Uh, I don't know why we do this, but we do it all the time. We'll say things like, that guy looks like his name would be Travis. He works a nine to five, but he definitely has a sleeve under that shirt. He probably plays in a death metal band in his spare time, uh, lives in a studio in Silver Lake with a dog named Shadow. And we draw all these conclusions just by looking at him. Now obviously that's a silly example, but when you think about it, we all do this every single day we interact with people who before even a word comes out of their mouth we've already judged solely on the basis of what we see on the outside solely on the basis of what they look like on paper like let's be honest when we see a guy walking around with holes in his jeans who looks like he hasn't showered in a few days we immediately put him in a category in our minds but then when we see that same guy get into a ferrari all of a sudden, completely changes our view. Like in an instant, it goes from, man, poor guy needs new pants, to dang, those are some sick vintage jeans. You see, we've been trained to make snap judgments about people based on what we see. We do this on social media all the time. We see one picture or one post, and we believe we know everything there is to know about that person. Wait, she reposted that? Dang, didn't know she was such a radical liberal. Wait, he took a picture with who? Oh, better unfollow him. You see, especially in a city like Los Angeles, the land of celebrities and the rich and the famous, where your worth is tied to a blue check mark, where what you look like and who you know defines your very existence, it's almost impossible not to create hierarchies and categories of people in our minds. And whether we do it intentionally or not, we all know that every one of us has a tendency to treat people according to the categories in which we've placed them. We either elevate them or discard them. And as sad as this is to say, sometimes even those categories can change overnight. Like I can't tell you how many actors I've spoken to who tell me how disillusioning it is to see how differently people treat you after you make it big. People who never once returned a phone call or email all of a sudden wanna grab coffee and see how you're doing. People who never once acknowledged you on social media are now commenting on every post and every story, this is the world we live in. A world where we're constantly sizing people up, where we're constantly asking ourselves, what can I gain from this person? How can this person benefit me? And maybe the worst part about it is, we do this in the church. You know, it's one thing to see this in our workplaces or our schools or in Hollywood, but keep in mind that James is speaking to believers. He's speaking to the church. He's saying, if there's anywhere a person shouldn't have to experience this, if there's anywhere a person shouldn't have to feel like they're constantly being measured and evaluated, it should be the church. This is the one place where things are supposed to be different. You see, the harsh reality of the world we live in is that there are people who wherever they go will get special treatment just by virtue of who they are. And there are others who, wherever they go, will always be on the outside looking in just by virtue of who they are. And James is saying, of all places, we cannot let that happen in the church. You know what I find really interesting? In verses 10 and 11, James talks about favoritism alongside sins like adultery and murder. As if to imply that in God's eyes, they're the same. You may not think it, but showing favoritism, judging and measuring someone based on external factors to God is just as heinous and evil as adultery and murder. Which brings me to the second point. Why is favoritism so deadly? Why is it that God despises this so much? Well, James makes it very clear. That there's something about favoritism, there's something about this ranking system we create in our minds that runs contrary to the very nature of God and undermines the very heart of the gospel. If you notice in verse 1, James makes it a point not just to say, my brothers and sisters don't show favoritism. He says, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ should not show favoritism. Meaning there's something about who Jesus is and who we are in him that should immediately stop us from categorizing people. Uh, You know, one of my best friends in high school was adopted. Uh, He was adopted when he was like eight or nine years old. So he was very aware of everything that was happening. He was old enough to know uh, what was happening. He'd gone through the foster care system a few times, uh, but by the grace of God met some incredible parents who really loved and cared for him as their own. And he had such a great personality, was universally beloved by everyone at our high school. And one thing I always admired about him that I still remember to this day was that he was always drawn to the people who were picked on and bullied. Like every day he'd eat lunch with them, not because he had to, but because he wanted to. And I think it's because he understood what it was like to be on the outside looking in. He understood what it was like to feel unwanted. And so no matter how popular he became, there was always this thing inside him that would not allow him to make someone else feel less than. And this is what James is getting at in verses 5 and 6 when he says, Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? Meaning, did you already forget your own story? That you too were once dead in the water? That you too were once on the outside looking in? That you had no business even being mentioned in the same breath as me? But you remember what I did? I didn't discard you. I didn't reject you. I died for you. And if you know this, how can you possibly turn around and categorize and evaluate people using standards I never judged you by? God is saying, if I judged you by the same standards you use to judge other people, you wouldn't be here. So before you go on social media and start ripping that person you can't stand, before you reject or dismiss someone based on their appearance, their family history, their profession, their past mistakes, their political views, ask yourself if God would have accepted you on the basis of your own standards. Because you see, according to God's standards, all of us fall miserably short of the mark. And yet Romans 5.8 says, While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He loved us while we were his enemies. He loved us when there was nothing about us that deserved his love. And so it breaks the Father's heart when we measure people on the basis of anything other than the fact that they are children of God, worthy of our love and care. You know, of all the many things that Jesus came into this world to do, one could argue that nothing was closer to his heart than eliminating favoritism. Because what's the opposite of favoritism? It's oppression. If favoritism is adding value to someone on account of something they possess then oppression is taking value away from someone because of something they don't possess. And you see, the society Jesus lived in was a society built on favoritism and oppression. It was extremely hierarchical. There were clear distinctions between the haves and the have-nots, not so different from the society we live in now. You had the teachers of the law who were considered to be closer to God. You had the tax collectors and the prostitutes who were seen as the scum of society. And people were rewarded or rejected as a result of their place in that society. And you know what the saddest part of all is? Is that these distinctions were not just present in the world. They were present in the temple. In the very place God was worshipped. See, there were certain parts of the temple that were reserved for different kinds of people. There were designations for clean and unclean. You often had to buy your way to get in with God. It was no different from a high school cafeteria where you have the cool kids at one table, the jocks here, the nerds there, the goths there, where it's clear that you need to be a certain type of person to be accepted. But you see, this is why Jesus was so upset. This is why Jesus starts flipping tables the moment he walks into the temple. He says, no, not here too. Because the very reason I've come is to eliminate these barriers once and for all. The very reason I've come is to destroy favoritism and oppression once and for all. The very reason I've come is to serve the very people you are exploiting and discarding. You see, there's something about God's heart that doesn't just tolerate the needy and the poor and the less put together. He's drawn to them. You know, when Jesus came into this world, he wasn't born in a palace. He was born in a feeding trough to poor parents. He didn't choose the smartest, most successful people to be in his inner circle. He chose nobodies. He chose a bunch of poor, uneducated fishermen. And over and over again, he reminds us that his kingdom is a different kind of kingdom. He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. God is drawn to those the world has given the lowest of positions. And he says to them, In my kingdom, you will not be forgotten. In my kingdom, you will not be discarded because my kingdom is not built on strength or power or might. My kingdom is built on weakness. 1 Corinthians 1, 27 and 28 says, But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. So that no one may boast before him. You see, the gospel is the great equalizer of all people. It humbles the proud and uplifts the lowly, which is why in Galatians 3:28 we, we read, "There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The very reason Jesus came was to eliminate every distinction and barrier man had created so that all would know the extent of their brokenness and all would know the saving power of God's love. And so James is saying, if you know this is who God is and what he came to this earth to do, how can you possibly show favoritism to anyone? So what is it? Judging and treating someone based on external factors. Why is it so deadly? because it contradicts the very heart of the gospel. And finally, how do we cure it? How do we begin to view people the way God views people? Do we just will ourselves to like people we don't really like? Do we just try to become friends with people who are different from us? I mean, when you look at verse 12, it almost seems like that's what James is saying. He says, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. I mean, if that doesn't put the fear of God in you, I don't know what will. And I think when we read that, we think to ourselves, okay, I don't want to be judged by God. So I guess I'll just try to do my best to be as merciful as possible. But can we even do that? Can we ever speak and act well enough to meet God's standard? And this is where the panic typically sets in because we think, wait, I could never truly love my neighbor as myself. I could never do enough to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And you're right. You can't. But this is where the good news comes in because at the end of verse 13, James adds this short but powerful line. He says, mercy triumphs over judgment. Now I want you to sit with that statement for a moment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And what James is getting at is the fact that the only way we can learn to show mercy to others, the only way we can be cured of this incessant need to constantly judge and condemn and reject is for us to remember our own story in which God lavished his mercy upon us a people who justly deserved His wrath and condemnation. And the way God did it was by being condemned Himself, by subjecting Himself to the utter humiliation of the cross and dying a criminal's death so that you and I would be made right and acceptable before God. You see, there was a high cost of the mercy shown to us. And I guarantee you, if you begin to live this way, you will get a glimpse of that cost. When you begin to love and care for people who offer no benefit to you whatsoever, who can't really help your career, who, make you more po- who can't make you more popular or give you something in return, you will likely pay a hefty price. Maybe you won't get promoted as fast. Maybe you'll be ridiculed. Maybe you'll be labeled a certain way. But know this. Any mercy we show in this life will pale in comparison to the mercy that was shown to us. And unless we get that, everything we do will be duty, not delight. Friends, the cure for favoritism is not to try harder. The cure for favoritism is to become broken people, to daily run into the arms of our loving Father who accepts us just as we are with all of our flaws, dysfunction, and weakness, recognizing that everything we have, we owe to Christ alone. And it's only when we grasp the magnitude of that truth that we can become the merciful people God calls us to be. You know, my hope and prayer is that citizens would be a church where those who are perpetually rejected and overlooked might find a home and a deep sense of belonging. A church where those who are constantly labeled as different or less than would be welcomed with open arms. A church that embodies the very gospel we preach. May we be that church, a church where mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's pray. Gracious God, we confess that we are all guilty of favoritism. We're all guilty of judging and treating people according to values you never placed on them. Forgive us, Lord, for taking your grace and your mercy for granted, a mercy that was extended to weak, broken, undeserving sinners. Help us today to remember the story of Jesus, the story of a God who came for the very people we're often so quick to judge and devalue. May we learn to see the world and others as you see it. We thank you for this word. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.